Hello and welcome to IHBC at COP26. Conserving buildings and places conserves our planet. Today we're joined by Dave Chetwin. Dave is Managing Director Partner of Urban Vision Enterprise CIC and a Director Partner of D2H Land Planning Development. He is also a High Street Task Force expert, Chair of the Board of the National Planning Forum, an Associate of the Consultation Institute, and a Design Council expert. Former roles include Head of Planning Aid England, Chair of the Institute of Historic Building Conservation, and Chair of the Historic Towns Forum. He has authored numerous guides to planning, development, heritage and regeneration, and drafted parts of BS7913. Well, welcome, Dave. Thank you for joining us today. Hi there. I'd like to start by asking you to tell us about yourself, how you got started, and why you're passionate about sustainability and conservation. Well, I, I drifted into planning, really. Um, I'm a charter town planner, and my companies are both uh, planning consultancies, um, or focused on planning uh, development, uh, use of land, etc. Um, but it, it was really in my mid-20s, I'd done other things uh, before that. Um, and uh, it, it, like many of these things, it was just a case of being in the right place at the right time. And uh, um, when I was uh, working in uh, local government, I uh, started to study planning and actually, actually did eight years of study. First, uh, getting through my planning uh, qualifications and then uh, architectural history as well. I did an MA in planning and then one in architectural history. So really I was starting then to get a real interest in design and uh, heritage and uh, uh, the more placemaking sides of uh, planning and, and regeneration as well. I was working at the time in Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, uh, so uh, regeneration and economic development were very much the, uh, the sort of core aims. And, uh, and, and, and I started in mainstream planning, but moved fairly quickly into design and conservation. And again, working in that kind of area, design and conservation had a very, very strong regeneration uh, uh, focus. So that really shaped my thinking and it meant also that I, I, I came to uh, heritage and placemaking very much from a, a making things happen and delivering growth uh, angle um, rather than um, I think so, you know there's some there's a sort of spectrum of uh, attitudes. So this is a simplification, but uh, sometimes it can be a more protectionist uh, perspective. But I think in many parts of the country, um, uh, you, you know, dealing with heritage is very much about delivering wider social, economic, and uh, environmental outcomes. So that's that's what attracted me really. I very much look at heritage as an integral part of the wider economic, social and environmental planning of, a, of an area. I think narrow focus on um, significance and certain aspects of, of, uh, uh, of the historic environment, uh, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it's actually about thinking of outcomes and how we use heritage and what it can deliver for society today so and particularly now where we're looking not just at growth um but we're looking at, at how sustainable that growth is so we're we're, we're uh, working against the context of climate change and some quite alarming um 
data on and, and predictions on uh, climate change and you know obviously in the day-to-day -day news as well so we live we live in a you know throughout my career there's been people saying oh we live in uh, difficult times or there are challenges but actually i think we really really are uh, um, in uncharted waters here in post-covid uh climate change um you know there's a lot of things there, there are a lot of real global challenges at the moment which um which perhaps are unparalleled so i, th I think uh, you know, very much uh, uh, seed planning as being a, a, a key activity against that uh, uh, context. You know, you touched on it there for, for a bit. You know, oftentimes uh, when we talk about climate change and, and the built environment, we sort of go straight into talking about retrofitting uh, of existing buildings, uh, energy efficiency, sometimes individual building elements. But I understand you think there's, there's a bit too much of this, maybe individual building focus, and uh, when considering sort of heritage and climate change. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, and, and, and I don't want to, uh, um, I don't want to, uh, uh, to give the impression that I think that's unimportant. I think uh, uh, converting buildings is important, but it's, it's a, a part of a much, much bigger picture. And um, so, yeah, I have had some concerns that heritage bodies in particular have had too much of a focus on the building and not enough on what makes places um, sustainable. So. Um, it, many of our historic environments were um, were designed, or they well, they weren't designed. Many actually were were, were more organic. Some were designed, right. some were came about more organically. But they did develop as part of a low carbon economy and based on uh, pedestrian movement and uh, accessibility of facilities and mixed use. So you you would find often within a a fairly um you know a fairly compact neighborhood you would find a range of of uh, different uses with people living near to the um places they work and the um and, and the local facilities etc so so we have have areas that came about as as part of a low carbon economy and uh, uh, developed low carbon places so we often find historic areas have superior characteristics in terms of pedestrian permeability and connectivity, uh, a fine grain mix of, of uses um, and, uh, uh, you know, concentrations of facilities, so particularly in, in centres, villages, towns, uh, city centres, concentrations of facilities with um, uh, and, and high density uh, developed often uh, party wall construction, which means there's a, a natural insulation between uh, properties. Um, you know, a public realm designed for for people rather than designed around the uh, motorised uh, transport. So, and, and then as time's gone on, public transport has tended to focus on these these centres. So we have a uh, you know we inherit sustainable patterns of development and uh, and that's very easy to lose actually so part of part of managing uh older areas it's not just about heritage management it's about land use movement sustainable live work patterns um uh, and, and uh, how to knit new development in so it reinforces those characteristics rather than actually losing those naturally uh, naturally sustainable 
characteristics. So I, 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 I think understanding place. So it's not just about building performance, it's about how an area performs, how people move around. And, and COVID actually, we've seen significant changes to live work patterns. And um, on the one hand, that, that is likely to lead us, I think, to a more sustainable pattern of living with more home working, uh, less commuting. On the other hand, this is creating problems for town city centres and, and smaller centres where uh, less people are going in and using the facilities. So, so it, this is always a balancing act. There's always different factors uh, occurring. We, you know, I've just been reading an article on public transport and what COVID has meant for the viability of public transport. So it's it's never a simple picture. It's always a weighing up. But understanding how the historic environment contributes to the creation of sustainable places is really fundamental and I think that's why a place focus is is so important you know however efficient buildings are if it's the wrong use in the wrong place um, or or in the way an area develops we're creating a less sustainable pattern then uh, that's harmful design seems to be back on the government's agenda good design beautiful design what can historic places teach us about urban design sort of going forward? Well, that, that, that's quite a complex question, I think. And in, in some ways, the, some of the points I've already covered, such as uh, how historic areas support pedestrian movement, permeability and connectivity as part of the answer um, to that. Uh, I, I think I mentioned uh, also the concentrations of um, of different uses, particularly in historic centres. So today we see see mention of uh, the 15-minute neighbourhood and the, the or the 20-minute neighbourhood, I suppose, depending how how quickly you can walk. Um, and, and that that concept is based around pedestrian permeability, connectivity, around mix of use, sustainable land uses, and having a range of facilities in close proximity, high density. Um, so the, the whole idea really of the 15 or 20 minute neighborhood is based on the low carbon economy I mentioned earlier. So we can learn a lot about, uh, um, uh, about how to create sustainable and well-connected and well-functioning neighborhoods. Now that, that takes us also onto green environments as well, because obviously part of the historic environment is is the uh, is about green spaces and the natural environment and and that can that can be urban green space or it can be in rural rural areas the surrounding landscape around in and around uh, settlements and, and and this is something we found increasingly to be the case actually in our in our work where we I think I mentioned uh, uh, we see the historic environment as an integral part of the economic, social and environmental planning of an area. Uh, we find planning for the natural or green environment and planning for, for heritage are, are, are deeply meshed into each other. So to, to give a few examples, we did some work in uh, the London's Garden suburbs and there the communities we were working with had a real interest in uh, biodiversity and ecology and that meant and a global suburb you can imagine meant really appreciating the contribution made by uh, by borders by trees hedges by garden space um, and, and, and trying to make sure that they weren't lost through things like hard surfacing or 
uh, development of the golden space. Um, so we find a close correlation there. So obviously the character of uh, uh, those areas, it's, it's partly on the, the buildings, townscape and uh, uh, architecture, but it's also very fundamentally about the landscape characteristics and uh, uh, and trees and uh, uh, you know different different aspects of of greenery. So we found in in developing policies for development for the area, um, there was a real correlation there between sustainability and protection of green space and green environment and green infrastructure and uh, and conservation. And, and, and to give a another example, uh, this was more of a village setting and looking at uh, planning policies around a village and there some of the undeveloped space within and, uh, and around the village was of fundamental importance and again uh, to, to biodiversity and habitats um, but equally these spaces were part of the uh, historic environment and historic lanes and uh, surrounding uh, uh, agricultural and, and other lands so again we found this close correlation between uh, conservation of the green and natural and uh, historic environments um so I, I, I think i think that's really uh really the direction of travel as well as a coming together of of conservation of different um resources i mean in terms, in terms of government recent government uh, thinking on design and obviously with the with planning reform getting into some difficulties um, we're not quite sure what's going to come out of that, but I, I do find I do find the the, the the sort of term beauty, which is used increasingly, is now written into planning policy. Kind of misses the point. It focuses on personal taste and aesthetics rather than on sustainability, fitness for purpose, how people move, creating safe environments, and. Uh, uh, you know, no, I'm not quite sure what beauty means in that context. I think also the movement to design codes is a, a double-edged thing. On the one hand, there's more focus on design, which is a good thing. And uh, but on on the other hand, we know ill-thought-through design codes and poorly conceived design codes can actually do more harm good, and it can be formulaic. It can actually sit very uncomfortably with with conservation uh, of, of historic environments. So we, it remains to be seen, you, you know, we've got the national design document, which which has, you know, got a lot of good stuff in, although it's very over complex, I think, the methodology in it. Um, but it remains to be seen what comes, comes out of that. So often you see um, sort of conservation of the green environment, the natural environment sort of siloed off. So that's really interesting to hear the, the sort of engaging work you've been doing and sort of combining those. And, and then again, on the design codes as well. And, and I wanted to ask, because I know you do work uh, on neighborhood planning as well. Do you see neighborhood plans as a, as a good way to sort of um, help local areas increase the sustainability and sort of protect heritage assets as well as enhancing the sort of sustainability of the area? Yeah, very much. And I think one of the main problems with the planning white paper was the fact that it seemed to shift power to the local plan and really move away from neighbourhood plans and indeed 
people engaging on a site-by-site or specific development uh, basis. So, um, I, we've done an awful lot of neighbourhood plan work. We've done, we've provided intensive support for well over 100 plans and, and have had some input into a lot more than that. And obviously, we've written some of the guidance, etc., on uh, neighbourhood planning. Um, so, yeah, neighbourhood plans, um, I think, have really shifted planning to a uh, a, di a different level. There's been debate about whether neighbourhood plans deliver additional growth or not, and, um, uh, and, and certainly based on the hundred and odd we've we've worked on intensively, they've really a lot. You know, that most have delivered additional growth to some extent, and some have delivered actually quite a lot of of additional growth, and that's both housing growth through site allocations or other other housing policies uh, but also there's often been a focus on town centres village centres how to make uh, such areas more sustainable more resilient how to um i mean you know we've seen again changing 18 months on uh, these issues as well so a lot of our assumptions and evidence on centres has changed really or, or within a period where there's a little bit of uncertain, uncertainty at the moment. Um, a neighbourhood plans, I think, I think so a lot of neighbourhood plans deal with heritage, uh, quite, quite a high proportion do. And, and again, the tendency is very much to deal with heritage as an integral part of the planning of the area, so not a separate subject, but, and, and the, you know, local communities, they have, um, a, a real interest in uh, uh, in design and heritage, but also, and I think this is where the planning white paper missed it, also in growth and catering for um, for different local needs and uh, and for helping areas to adapt. And, uh, uh, it, and, and uh, I think the white paper really missed that. that the motivation for many people getting involved with neighbourhood plans isn't just about design, which perhaps the white paper implied but it's about how the area grows and, and for, for for quite a few of the communities we've dealt with they've come in with an, an ambitious growth agenda and and use the neighborhood plan as the means to to try and put that in uh, in place and and again the work I've, um, you know the points are made really about natural environment green environment historic environment having a lot of you know strong correlation between them really in neighborhood plans that's come across very very clearly that uh, there's a lot of common interests uh, uh, between these and, and, and right. that's also the health, the health agenda that's not just um that's not just about uh, about live work patterns and the like, but uh, planning for pedestrian movement and green space and the the like. That's important also for for physical and mental mental health. Something that's much much more in the open now. You know, it's discussion of people's mental well-being and the and the like. And all of these have been factors. Uh, and, and a lot of a lot of groups of I think what a lot of groups are after is practical ways of building climate change into their plans. So that's something we've done a lot of work around is how you write right, okay. local local solutions to a global problem. I heard you mention growth there uh, quite a few times. You know there's there's a view that growth means expanding energy means 
more carbon means bad for climate change. But what what do you have to say about that? So I, th I think we're all aware of the issue between consumption and um, uh, and, and uh, sustainability and particularly cheap throwaway goods. But when we're talking about places and cities and villages and and towns, I think I think uh, uh, it's simplistic to have a, a growth versus sustainable uh, balance. And actually, a no growth policy can be very destructive and lead to less sustainable live-work patterns. So, particularly in in areas more underperforming areas. So we know part of the country, the economy is overheating, the housing market particularly is, is overheating. And, and actually in some areas it's completely broken. Even people on a very high wage are in shared accommodation because it's so beyond the means of, uh, you know, people to get suitable housing. But there's a lot of the country as well that has the opposite problem, actually. The, the, the challenge is, is local economic opportunity and the challenge is keeping the area viable and making efficient use of land and keeping town and city centres and village centres alive which are a, a sustainable you know part of a sustainable structure of living so in those areas a no growth policy really locks them into a cycle of underperformance it means they'll go into further decline underuse of buildings of land um, and you know, actually leads to less sustainable with work patterns where the, the, there's a lack of local economic opportunity. So I think this brings us on to the levelling up agenda, whatever, whatever levelling up means. Um, my, my personal view is levelling up is about addressing uh, uh, geographical uh, economic inequalities and um, so creating a more, um, a more uh, what can I say, a more evenly distributed uh, uh, economic activity across the country. And that makes better use of, of, of areas where investment is needed and jobs are needed. And it takes the pressure then off the, 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 the areas that are overheating. Uh, my fear is, if you look, look at government programmes and planning policy at the moment, it's very much geared to high growth areas and to getting more development in high growth areas and, and actually we need a fundamental change of thinking there where firstly the planning policy recognizes underperforming areas and areas where viability is the challenge and getting uh, investment in employment is the challenge and, and that actually needs quite a different set of policies to areas where they're overheating and it's uh, all about housing supply uh, and, and the same in government programmes, it needs to be much more about incentivising development in, in underperforming areas so, so that our towns and cities and villages all around the country are, 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 are being helped to recover and to, to become more, uh, more prosperous. So uh, it's very fundamental to, to levelling up agenda to understand that. And I think a simple no growth it's actually really unfair. It's it it, it 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 just locks in and makes worse social inequalities, and it, it's not a it's not a sensible solution. I think. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I'd like to wrap up by asking you, in your estimation, what does the future look like, or what should it look like in terms of sustainability and conservation of the built environment? <laughs> what the future looks like is above my pay grade, <laughs> but what the future should 
should look like. Um, I, I, I think from planning from planning reform and from reform of government programmes, a whole levelling up thing. And obviously, we're waiting for the white paper to come out on the levelling up, and we're waiting to see what happens on planning reforms. But a uh, uh, very much of the the view and, and, and actually fundamental principle behind open vision enterprise is that planning should be a, a, a creative problem solving place making and participatory activity so that's what i'd like to see really more emphasis on things like neighborhood planning uh, a re a writing a planning policy that doesn't have a nationwide policy on affordable housing, which makes no sense whatsoever, but recognises that there's a different problem in different parts of the country. So a much more um, nationally written planning policy with less of an assumption of high growth areas in it. Government programmes that target uh, skills and viability challenges and incentivising development in the areas that most need it, but where perhaps the market doesn't quite stack up at the moment. So in some ways, a shift to the the thinking of the 1980s, where it was about pump priming and getting the market to to work, you know. Um, so uh, 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 absolutely don't suggest a return to regional policy, which was equally crude in its own, own way. It's more of a fine-grained focus on um, on the areas that are underperforming, the areas where there's potential to take development, we incentivise development to go go to those areas. So that that's very very much what I, I would like to see. I think some of the recent reforms on planning around use classes and permitted development have actually um, actually had the opposite effect, and they they work against levelling up. Um, so uh, it remains to be seen where government thinking now lies.